Before we get into the episode, we want to let you know we are gathering another Attaching to God learning cohort. In it, you will escape your anxious jungles and avoiding deserts of faith and grow into secure attachment with God and with others. This is a one-of-a-kind six-week cohort combining recorded teachings and live cohort calls. So you can get all the details at embodiedfaith.life slash learning dash cohorts or see the show notes for details after the description. Hey there, welcome back to the Embodied Faith Podcast. Here are a couple questions that we're going to be talking about today. Are theologians dabbling in neuroscience, are they kind of overreaching? Or maybe when neuroscientists talk about theology, are they possibly being reductionistic? Is there a way of balancing these different kinds of things and integrating theology and neuroscience? Well, today I'm really excited to have uh, Jim Wilder on. But as always, I'm Jeff Holsklaw, and this is the Embodied Faith Podcast brought to you by Grassroots Christianity. So today we're talking about what is a neurotheologian and a lot of other questions. Uh, Jim Wilder is a clinical psychologist and neurotheologian uh, based out of the Life Model Works uh, group or movement or organization. He is author of many books, uh, recently renovated um, God, Dallas Willard, and the Church That Transforms. And he also co-authored The Other Half of the Church, Christian Community, Brain Science, and Overcoming Spiritual Stagnation. Jim, thanks so much for jumping on again. Oh, there we go. All right. We're both here now. Yeah, we're both here. Thanks so much for uh, coming on today. And uh, like we were talking about just before we hit record, I have, you know, some people that I'm talking about, you know, I host this podcast, Um, you know, people love the work you're doing and others at Life Model. And uh, you're, you call yourself a neurotheologian. Some people ask me what that means. And I was like, well, why don't I ask him? So we have some questions. I gave you a bunch of questions beforehand, but let's kind of start at the, the highest level. Um, without being too academic, we want to keep this very church-based. But neuroscience is a really broad field. Uh, and it means different things to different people. So before we get to what is a neurotheologian, you know, what is this neuroscience or neurology or what are you specifically kind of working in and around? Like what's your school or movement or influences? Right. Well, um, the thing about the brain is it operates at different speeds. And so we often refer to that as communication or something of that nature. And so the the neuroscience that I'm interested in is roughly uh, covers four operating speeds. One is the extremely fast speed, uh, which is faster than consciousness, and it creates our identity. So I ba- basically, I'm really interested in identity and what forms it. Uh, Then there's a slower speed we call conscious thought. Uh, That's where most people stay. Uh, This is the cognitive uh, kind of neuroscience. And that's interesting to me, but not so much because not the the majority of things that shape shape character don't happen at that speed. Then there's a slower speed yet that could be anywhere from fractions of a second up to... uh, uh, months or even years, which is how your brain communicates with your body. Mm -hmm. And then uh, 
The slowest of all speeds is how the brain communicates with other brains and forms a group mind. And this one can actually have an effect over a number of generations as people begin to think more and more together. Mm -hmm. And oddly enough, the group mind is the most tied uh, to the other end, the, the identity, super fast. So to me, neuroscience is how the brain communicates with all of those um, other realms of life and at different speeds and, and by different methods. So it's so just to be clear, it's not because sometimes people think of like cognitive neuroscience. So that right. be, that's standard uh, right there. It, yeah. And that's um, how how people think, how people process information, especially mm-hmm. kind of in a very kind of like I'm aware of my own awareness kind right. of way of thinking about mm-hmm. things. And then some people think of neuroscience just as kind of the neurology, like the brain scans. Like, let's talk about how a neuron connects with another neuron and all the different neurochemical kind of firing and all those types of things. And then let's look at brain scans and see which part lights up when you're doing different activities. And that stuff is involved in all the stuff Mm -hmm. you mentioned, but you're thinking much more broadly than just kind of those narrow kind of fields. Is that right? Yeah, I'm really interested in how do all these things work together because my... um, general sense is that God designed things to go together and the effect of sin, fallenness and other kinds of inadequacies are that things begin to break apart and not work together. So your group identity, your body, your uh, conscious thoughts and your, your faster than conscious uh, identity are somehow not in sync with each other. And then that's when we start getting distress. Mm-hmm. So the the lack of integration and the balance and the wholeness there. Mm-hmm. So yeah. just one last Rick, real nerdy question because some people you know are like, well, like where where did where did Jim learn all this stuff? And I you know you know and I'm a researcher, so I'm always like digging around and I've been down doing my own primary research. But you know as best as I can tell, you know early on you were kind of very influenced by people like Alan Shore um, and. Dan Siegel, he is very much all about integration also and things like that. So like that kind of relational or what sometimes people call affective, like, or inter, the, the big term is the interpersonal neurobiology kind of right. school of mm-hmm. uh, neuroscience. Is that kind of the broad kind of umbrella that you've been swimming in for the last 20 plus years? Or is it somewhere else that uh, you've been pulling from? Well, uh, I've actually have a, um, a pretty broad background of experience yeah, I did start the the eye-opening part for me was Alan Shore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used to sit in the next seat over from uh, Dan Siegel while he was at the lectures, you know, and um, working with um, a variety of different sources. But uh, my original experience was actually with um, Dr. Lee Travis, who's one of the people who invented the EEG machine. Uh, and discovered brainwaves. And so being trained in, in brainwaves, after that, I went to a neurofeedback and uh, we were training different brains uh, activities and based on a whole variety of different input stuff. Then I went to the uh, VA hospital where I was tra- trained in the Luria method of uh, neurological evaluation and then combined that with the EEG feedback and all of that uh, then went to working at neurological real rehabilitation centers with people with uh, various degrees of damage. At that point, we were like brain, human brain scan machines because brain scan <laughs> hadn't been um, developed yet. And so we would test people and find out 
where do the neurosurgeons have to do their work, you know? Um, and, you know, from there on, then when we really trying to figure out why it was that some people just weren't healing, weren't sustaining their recovery from various traumas, uh, that's when the, the decade of the brain came along and the whole faster than consciousness, uh, interpersonal neurobiology and all of that was discovered. And mm -hmm. so we added that to the, uh, you know, the picture of what was going on. So um, about 40 years back, I also decided that if I was going to uh, think of some things that most people didn't, I was going to have to stop watching media and reading magazines. And so I've devoted my time since then to a huge amount of uh, reading of various uh, authors and people like that. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's been an interest of mine ever since, uh, I'd say, really probably about age 12, reading everything I could get my hands on. Oh, wow. Well, that's super. I mean, I didn't even know some of that background. So you've been hands-on in the field from the very beginning. So that was, what, in the 90s or... Um... Uh, well, yeah, actually started in the late seventies. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's, that's great. So thank you for that. I know because sometimes, you know, you, you write and you're very, you popularize ideas, which is super helpful, but you know, some people are like, well, he's just making stuff up. And I was like, no, he's not, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know? Um, but it's so great to hear that you're, you've been working and in, in the field, uh, hands-on, uh, as well as, you know, reading and working with all those people. So, okay. So that's the first half of the neurotheologian side. So now if we put that together, you know, I know this is like a calling for you to minister in the church in this way. Uh, so what, what does that mean? The neologian, you know, that with that word, what does that word mean for you? Yeah. Well, I've been doing this for a long time before I ever heard the word near neurotheologian. Mm -hmm. And basically that traces back to the year 400 uh, with the Bishop Nemesius of Emesa, uh, who wrote the first book on it, which stood for about a thousand years as the textbook for Christians on how does uh, the Christian life get embodied in the human body. Mm -hmm. And so um, it, what you're looking at, um, I kind of think of it as that interface between the software and the hardware. So the human body is the hardware, and then the instructions of how we're supposed to use it uh, are the theology. And mm. so it seems to me logical that uh, if God's trying to optimize the way we live, that it would also be optimizing the way the brain and body he designed to, it to go with are going to function. So I keep looking for those overlapping points of light, you know, if the uh Bible says something and neuroscience says the same thing, it particularly attracts my interest. Like, okay, here we go. We're getting a match. Yeah. Well, what are some of those, what are some of those overlapping lights, as you said, what, what have you found as you've been doing this? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the first one was really came out of Alan Shore when he said the brain develops in response to joy and joy means someone is glad to be with you. Mm -hmm. But at that point, uh, I remember hearing the lecture and I thought, I wonder if the Bible has anything to say about joy. Uh, having been a Christian for, you know, over 40 years at that point, um, I hadn't remember anyone really talking about it. But mm -hmm. then when I went back and looked at Scripture, every time God mentions the Holy Spirit 
or uh, the rewards for people that are following God, it's always joy and peace. Mm-hmm. And these were the two things that Shore suggested were the only deeply desirable things for how the brain was designed. And then the brain was essentially a relational thing. And so I went back to look at scripture and says, is God essentially relational? Uh, and, uh, you know, I find a match at those levels, you know, and then the uh, interesting part of the brain that contains our identity is the neurological equivalent of three faces looking at each other. Uh, it's not that you, if you look at them, they don't physically look like it, but it's a neurological representation of three faces who are at the same time one and three. And I wonder, where did that idea come from? Oh, well, I want to know about that. That's not on my list of questions. But what, what do you mean the neurological three faces? The, you know, I, I dare not you know, say different parts of the brain for misspeaking because I, I, I misspeak. Yeah, well, things, if but... we're, they're all in three in the prefrontal cortex. One is the ventral medial prefrontal. The other is the dorsal medial prefrontal. And then there's the dorsal lateral prefrontal. And each one of them represents a face or a different point of view. Uh, and uh, when they're thinking together, that's the part of your brain that thinks of itself as me. Mm. Brings three perspectives. And if uh, you're basically trained by three people who get along well, who have a, a love bond with each other, a joyful attachment, these perspectives work together like one. And if you're basically modeled over families that fight with each other all the time, these three perspectives don't get along and one becomes a critical voice in your head that's always telling you what's wrong with you and mm. uh, looking at you from the outside and going, oh, I don't like you. And, you know, it breaks apart. But, uh, you know, that's what happens if you add the devil in as one of the trinity. You know, it just isn't going to run right uh, mm. spiritually. So I, I see some parallels there in design. Oh, wow. So really quick, what are the three different perspectives? There's, you, there's three different brain areas. What are, do they add a unique perspective, or are they just kind of working together? Or? Yeah, well, they're very closely aligned with what would happen if you have a loving mother and father. So, okay. uh, one is me. The second is someone who loves me and shares uh, my reality with me, which would normally be copied off of your mother. And then the third one is a outside perspective of someone watching those two uh, with uh, delight, hopefully. Like, I really encourage this uh, relationship. And uh, then the, the switching between the mother and the father, let's call them those two, uh, would be from an internal perspective, what do I feel inside, and the external perspective, how does this affect the people around me? And we can do all three of those perspectives at the same time, but we can't do four. Got it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm taking notes for a whole different podcast about all that because, <laughs> you know, I've read a lot of your stuff and I haven't even heard about that. So now I'm less like really interested. So, okay. So you, so basically you're now kind of showing what a, th- what a, like a neurotheologian is it's doing, interested right? in, yeah, yeah. You're, you're bringing these kind of different things together. What do you have a sense of like what, and, and maybe you just said this, but what the overall like task or or goal of a neurotheologian? Uh, and I want to, yeah, I want to make that, I, yeah, I kind of want to see like the specific, like what are you hoping for, especially as a, I suppose you could say as a Christian neurotheologian or something like that. 
Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the uh, thing that we're trying to do is, uh, in a sense, compensate for culture. The Bible has been translated into culture across the years, and so depending on you know, which century it was translated into and in what language, the translators had to pick up something that made sense to that culture for a translation. Um, and it's a little bit like, have you, did you ever um, try to follow the instructions that have been translated right out of Chinese or Japanese uh, as to how to put something together? Yeah, yeah, there's gaps and a little kind of awkward. Right, like, yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, when the big debate in theology was over beliefs, the uh, words in the Bible were translated in abstract ideas. They're often body words, you know, like uh, compassion means, you know, your your stomach is moved, your, your, your intestines are responding, which would work very nicely with the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. uh, but the idea of compassion becomes very abstract. Uh, and so when we wonder, what is there, what are they talking about? Uh, in neurological terms, we're talking about, you know, the, how your body responds to somebody else's distress. Um, mm -hmm. And that gets lost in the meaning. So uh, one of the things that happens is we, we try to change uh, character. We try to explain the gospel according to, um, our beliefs this is one of the current problems instead of the, really the way the brain learns things. Mm. So, um, you know, the easiest way to say the brain has changed much more by who we love than what we think or believe consciously. And so we've been trying to get changes that just don't work. So you go back and go, is that in the Bible? If you look at the original languages, was God talking about something that's compatible with how the brain works? Or, or not, and often it clarifies what a, a, a passage is talking about. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the meaning is there, but the emphasis has been shifted uh, often in translations because the people doing the translation had no idea really about how to apply this to how the, uh, we actually learn or interact with others. Uh, it doesn't change the meaning of the theology, uh, but it does shift the app, you know, how do we actually put it into practice quite often? Um, so is, is discipleship a matter of teaching people all the right ideas and getting them memorized scripture? Or is it a, a process by which we get to know who God is and practice that kind of character with other people? Well, both are true, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. But they've been sort the emphasis has been shifted and neurotheology shifts it back in a different direction. Uh, without contradicting contradicting what the 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 truths are that we've already learned. Yeah, I love that. So that's kind of and I, I take a little note while you're talking. It's, so the task of of neurotheology is almost to get out of an overly cognitive uh, and another, you know, the the solution of choice, you know, an overly cognitive or volitional, mm -hmm. will based understanding of. Of loving God, uh, back to more of an actually biblical kind of way of understanding loving God with our our whole you know body, mind, and strength and things like that. Uh, and so I love that. So trying to get out of um, kind of this overly cognitive, whether you call it Western or not or whatever, I you know because I know theology books that basically say that the task of the theologian is to tell us what to know 
and tell us how to obey what God told us to do. It's basically know some truths and then apply your will to doing those truths. Mm-hmm. Um, not that, you know, and, and we don't get rid of those things, but what a neurotheologian like you would basically say is while those things are important, they're actually not the core of us and they actually don't, taking that approach doesn't actually change our character uh, very much. Um, and so we have to kind of do a different thing. Yeah, yeah. But we have to include some other elements that kind of got left out of the debates at the time that that theology was was written, because now we're talking about, you know, theology about can people save themselves by their own efforts? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, no, you're going to have to have something coming in from God. And it, now we're talking about is what's coming in from God church tradition or what's in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so now you've got another debate says, so no, only what's in the Bible. Uh, can we be sure is coming from God? And so that, that colors the, you know, the, the important point at the time, uh, but often the, to the exclusion of some of the rest of the complexity of God, let's say. Sure. Sure. Well, I even just, yeah, I love the way you're applying kind of brain structures and how our identity is created and, uh, you know, saying, well, it's interesting that that looks just like the the Trinity. <laughs> and, you know, we believe, you know, in Father, Son, and Spirit and the relationships and, you know, the the differences and yet the relationship between the three. Mm-hmm. Super important. So, um, shifting gears a little bit. Sure. If... What would you say? Well, first of all, for anyone who's listening or watching this live, you can ask some questions or make some comments in uh, Facebook or YouTube or wherever you are. Uh, and I'll try to work those into you. So feel free to add those questions or comments. Um, you know, but some people who are, you know, professional researchers, um, neuroscientists doing lab work and things like that, you know, they might look at you or me or others and be like, do they really know what they're talking about? Or um, are they kind of overstepping or overreaching their bounds? You know, and I know some people who are reading deeply into like trauma work and things like that, you know, they're very suspicious of pastors like glomming onto this literature, you know. So how would you how would you answer that kind of concern that people have or, you know, outright critique? Yeah, I'd say they're right a lot of times. Um, (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, First of all, there's a real tendency, very, very strong tendency uh, for people in um, psychology to proof text something out of the Bible. So uh, it's quite the same that people uh, who want to proof text something out of neurology will pick up some tidbit of brain something or another, and they'll go, see, this explains why this or the other thing works. Mm-hmm. And uh, those, um, you know, those kind of correspondence, uh, it happens quite a bit. Um, I think that the idea of of it being essentially reductionistic, uh, if you go all the way with that argument, you're denying uh, the creation, you're denying the uh, incarnation, and you're denying the resurrection. Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, God created something. When we study it, we should be able to learn about the creator. Uh, Secondly, Jesus operated a human brain, and he made it run right. So that's really the, the key element. If Jesus could make a human brain run right, can we learn to do that as well? And then the fact of the resurrection is that he's forever running a human body. Mm-hmm. So something about this should be able to operate the way that God designed, and it generally doesn't, right? 
that's not reductionism. That is actually saying there ought to be harmony here. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I talk about the right brain a lot because that's where a lot of the identity and the you know, interpersonal stuff happens. And I have people forever trying to say, oh, you're, what the Bible calls the heart is the same as the right brain. And mm-hmm. I go, no, that's basic reductionism right there. There's the, by what the Bible describes as the heart does involve a lot of the things the right brain does. It's responding to whatever the Bible is referring to as the heart, but to make them correspond to each other, I think is a basic error in thought that's, mm. that's commonly made. And there's a, there's a thousand of those. Um, but to say the brain is involved is not reductionistic at, at all. Uh, unless it's the only factor. And of course, about 120 years ago, that was the the time when science got pulled away from theology. And then the idea was, can we explain everything without the theology stuff, without God? And, you know, there's sort of a built-in knee-jerk response going like, well, if you're talking about biology again, you must be trying to eliminate God. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas um, I'd say, uh, oh, no. Uh, we're we're actually trying to say, let's look at what he built and see what we can learn about how he meant it to operate. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, that's how you know I always point people to the like you just did the two natures of Jesus, and if he was fully God and fully human, um, and integrated kind of those realities, then we should be able to s- tell robust stories of our natural, embodied neurological um, reality. Um, mm-hmm. as well as telling really robust um, kind of stories or theologies about, you know, spiritual, supernatural, however you want to describe that reality where we're engaging with God through his spirit and all these types of things. So we should be able to tell robust stories on both sides instead of reducing one to the other. And I think sometimes, you know, we just want to tell a spiritual story. We totally disregard any kind of psychology or neurology or any, you know, all that stuff, or you get other people who are like, well, it's all just, you know, neurons firing and what we call God is just, you know, whatever the transcendence that we can't explain. And our, our right brain is trying to blah, blah, blah. Right. Mm-hmm. So we've heard those kind of reductions. So, um, but I, I'm glad you kind of said that, that, you know, both sides can proof text and we need to avoid that. You know, we need mm-hmm. to kind of dig deeper and kind of do a little bit better. Well, so as far as not proof texting, then some people ask like, well, what is the neurological basis for this joy? Like you've mentioned Alan Shore already, like joy is kind of fundamental to the life model process, to the work that you do. So what could you kind of just unpack that a little bit from the, you know, our embodied natural side and then kind of lead us into what that might mean theologically or discipleship wise? Yeah. Without getting too much into the genotype and phenotype language uh, of science, the brain is actually designed to do some things pretty well and not really very do others very well at all. That's one of the problems with brain scans, by the way, because when the brain is doing what it does very well, it doesn't tend to light up the brain scans at all. Brain scans light up when it's burning a lot of sugar, usually doing something it doesn't do well. Mm-hmm. And so the, one of the problems is the things the brain does well don't show up much in brain studies. Um, and uh, but one of the things one of the things it does well uh, from birth on is it looks for faces, human faces. They pick out a human face from others. When it looks at human faces, it wants to see the left side of the face. So it looks at the left side of the face. It loves to look at the left eye. And what it responds to is any indication in the left side of the face, the left eye, that I'm looking at you and that I'm happy about it. 
this reaction of looking at you with delight, um, the uh, spiritual word for it, the Bible word for it would be grace. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the delight in seeing you, the wanting to be with you, is what creates the biological sense of joy. Um, so now the question is, did God design the brain to respond to what God meant when he said joy? Or is what God talks about as joy something that the brain can't recognize? Mm -hmm. And that's the basic theological question. So some people from very spiritual traditions say, no, joy, when God talks about it, has nothing to do with relationship whatsoever. It's just some spiritual transcendent state of euphoria that you enter into with no connection to anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, but the brain doesn't know much about that unless you just flooded it with rare chemicals of some kind. Uh, I then neurotheology says, well, if God created the brain to respond to someone being glad to be with me, then passages like, may the Lord make his face shine upon you, which is basically smile at you in Hebrew, um, mm -hmm. and be gracious to you, let you know that you're special, and give you peace, is exactly what the brain is respond, designed to respond to. And Alan Shore has proven pretty unequivocally that this is what stimulates the growth of the brain, about a third of the brain grows in response to that. It's what gives the brain its strength to deal with problems. And it's what creates the identity. So if the basic structures that grow a brain are around joy, uh, then if you say that's what God meant, that's why it made it very important to the life model. This is what makes the basic structure that makes me, me grow and form attachments and uh, otherwise become a relational, functional human being. Without that, the brain becomes rather disorganized and upset for a lifetime. So mm. uh, it's the fundamental principle around brain growth, and therefore um, we take it to be important. Yeah, oh, yeah. The, all those findings about the, the infant child being the original facial recognition software built in from, you know, moments, almost moments after, you know, mm -hmm. birth, right. uh, the studies that um, cross-culturally uh, mothers will hold babies in their left arms so that the child's left face is positioned right to be looking at the mother's left face, mm -hmm. which connects right brain to right brain and how that is it. It's not just a, a right-handed, left-handed thing. Even left-handed mothers will still carry Same children thing. in their left hand. And so there's this kind of right brain to right brain, left face to left face, as you were saying, all these different connections um, mm -hmm. and how that's so important in the, the development of the child. So, so that's why you make joy um, essential. But then I've heard people say, well, if joy is so essential, the trouble is, is when you're dealing with traumatized people, uh, their capacity for joy is basically zero. Uh, and so how are we helping them by emphasizing joy, which is an activity that they can't currently do or receive um, or engage in? Uh, what would you say to that concern? I would say the question is wrong because they haven't understood joy. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Um, my wife and I were getting ready for a trip to uh, the Netherlands and I happened to be downstairs and suddenly I heard her call, Jim, and there's something in her voice that made me drop everything and run upstairs. And she had fallen and broken her legs, so it was going in a direction legs don't oh, normally no. bend. And when she looked at me, she was incredibly glad that I was there. Mm. Now she's in intense pain, she's very upset. 
But joy is that I'm very glad you are here experience, not the I'm feeling euphoric about it. So you can have joy uh, that's all things are going well, and that's normally the limit that you put joy in. But if you've ever been in trouble, did you ever get your car stalled in a winter storm mm -hmm. and the policeman showed up or a tow truck or something? Did you, you know, did you ever have a heart attack and, you know, you saw the paramedics arrive? That experience of you are, I'm glad you're here with me is still joy. It's just under difficult conditions. Now, mm -hmm. people don't recover from trauma unless somebody's glad to be with them and help them out of it. Mm -hmm. It's not the euphoric, everything is fine joy, but it's the same same circuits we're talking about. Is someone glad to be here? Are they? Do they want to see me, know me, be with me? And it's essential for trauma recovery. And just because they don't do the, the euphoric side of it particularly because they're in pain, doesn't mean they're not experiencing the same uh, joy. Well, finally, somebody has come to help me uh, feeling. Uh, and so if you expand joy to you know, what it really means, we're glad to be together. We can have people glad to be with us in, when we're in trouble, maybe even more intensely than people being glad to be with us because we're just having a nice afternoon. Yeah, so joy, as you're expressing it, as you're, mm -hmm. you've been talking about all along, isn't so much a, a happy feeling. Um, and it doesn't deny the troubles of life, but it's oh. the being with someone who's delighting to be with you. And mm -hmm. that actually allows people to then engage in more productive ways, which will allow them to uh, process trauma that's been unprocessed, that is firing and interrupting their life in ways they probably don't appreciate or sometimes don't even recognize. Uh, but joy, the being with you know, allows that space. And that's why for you, you're always emphasizing communities. We need a whole community, what you call Hesed, a Hesed community, loving kindness, uh, mm -hmm. long suffering community, because someone who's been traumatized can't come out of that by themselves, right? That's quite true. And if we basically look at God's response, while we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies, he was glad to be with us because he's, a, he's our only hope right? Mm -hmm. uh, then that we embody that character, that we are glad to be with people who are in trouble. Um, and uh, basically anyone who's not living life the way that God designed as optimal, they're not thriving. Um, uh, you know, they need our help. They need somebody who's glad to be with them and show them a better, wiser way. Um, uh, now, human thriving, I think of sort of like a, a pot up plant uh, in a vase, a flower in a vase. Mm -hmm. You know, it looks good right now, but it's not sustainable because it's been cut off from the source of life. Mm. And so humans can thrive over the short bit, Paul, without God, um, because of God makes his rainfall and the just and the unjust together, you know, but to sustain our thriving, we need to have that connection with God. And um, part of that is what we experience with God we have to practice with other people or the brain doesn't learn it. Mm. So it's not sustainable for the brain if we haven't practiced with a, with other humans. Um, uh, and, you know, it's not more than human if we don't experience something from God that adds to what all the people around us have been able to show us. So, you know, there's always these two woven, woven together. The brain needs a lot of practice. Mm. And uh, I think God set it up so we have to practice with each other. Um, but we have to receive the life from him. And 
those two things uh, are inseparable. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that's again, why community and relational skills um, is our spiritual capacity can only grow as far as our relational skills have developed. Um, Mm -hmm. And that those relational skills can only really develop in community. Uh, And so if we're seeking to live, you know, a spiritual life with God by ourselves, and we're not increasing our spiritual capacity, our relational capacity in any way, we're going to hit kind of, you know, a ceiling, get frustrated or or whatever. St. John is pretty outspoken about it. He basically said, don't tell me you have an attachment with God if you haven't got something you're attached to with your brothers and sisters. Hmm. So those who aren't practicing it with others cannot claim they actually have it with God, at least from his perspective. Mm -hmm. And I'd have to agree with him. Right. And that as far as integrating neuroscience, relational neuroscience and, you know, theology, like the dual love command, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. love God and love others. And it makes so much sense because you, you know, you really can't do one or the other um, because it's really hard to love other people if you're not in touch with this kind of ultimate and perfect source of love. Uh, but if you're connected with this ultimate and perfect source of love and it's not overflowing, then your connection is probably not what you think it is. Um, you're actually not exercising the brain circuits that need to learn to live that way under distress. So you'll do it fine as long as nothing is going wrong. But as soon as something goes wrong, your brain goes, uh, wait a minute, I, I've got to pay attention to my my trained kind of skills right now to take care of this and whatever those are. Um will have not been strengthened without practice with people. Mm, Yeah. Well, you just finished working kind of on that end of the conversation, which is how do you love your enemies getting out of enemy mode? And I know it's coming out, I think next fall or something like that, but you want to give a a quick preview of, of some of the things you've been working on and as kind of another example of this neuro theologian kind of perspective of bringing things together. Sure. It's a little, Hard to make a whole book brief, but the, <laughs> well, just the uh, idea of enemy mode yeah. and what's what's happening mm-hmm. there, and you know, so, we're, we know, hopefully, we know that Jesus calls us to love our enemies, but you know, that's harder mm-hmm. to do than just to say. Um, yeah, and precisely because we don't practice it, loving your enemies is actually a learned response to the brain. The brain is a prediction-making machine, among other things, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to predict how everything's going to go. Uh, and prepare us to with what our options are when we get there. So when the brain predicts that somebody is not going to be on my side, they're not going to be looking out for me, uh, it basically says, okay, we're going to treat this situation as though we're dealing with an enemy, someone Mm -hmm. who's going to be against me, not for me. And once your brain is in enemy mode, uh, it no longer is able to distinguish whether somebody's a friend or an enemy. That's the tricky thing. It reconfigures itself so that it takes all its input as going to be hostile. So you can actually feel like someone, and you've probably encountered this with partners and children, and you know, you're trying to help them, and they're like angry and responding like, you know, uh, you don't get it, you're not on my side, you know, they're not, and we say they're not listening. We actually can do that at a national level. We can do that at Congress <laughs> really? level. We, you know, we can do that in social media. It's really, uh, the brain slides into that very quickly. Mm-hmm. And now we have what's called state-dependent learning. Whatever goes on in that state, you handle it as though 
it were an enemy input. So we're going to say, well, here's what I've heard about vaccinations. And the brain goes, aha, they're attacking now. I'm going to look for a hole in that as opposed to mm. going, hmm, this person might be trying to help me with whatever this information is. Uh, and so we actually get better at better at fighting as opposed to loving our enemies. But state-dependent learning means you have to learn how to love your enemies when somebody feels like an enemy. And the problem is your brain does not know how to do that uh, just naturally. Mm. We have to have an attachment with somebody who um, loves that person. And then that three-way, uh, three faces in our brain goes, yeah, well, I know you and them are fighting, but from out here, I don't think you need to. And that perspective can either be another human uh, who loves that person, or it could be God. Uh, God's perspective, uh, and then we go, okay, um, well, let me see it from your perspective. How do you see that person? And go, well, I care about them, and I, I'm, I'm looking out for their interest, and our brain goes, really? Now? Well, I'm mad at them? Oh, yeah, yeah, even now. Uh, and so then we learn that in, again in community. We've basically identified three forms that it gets expressed depending on where the process gets stuck in the brain. The first is simple enemy mode. I just look at you and go like, yeah, I'm not going to engage with you. No energy. Second is I get stupid and say and do things that I regret later, high energy. And the third is sort of predatory, like, okay, uh, you're my enemy and I'm going to think about this and figure out how to take you out and make this a win for me. Mm. So all three ways uh, they, they get stuck at different parts in the brain processing pathway, but, um, you know, they, it's basically enemy mode. And, uh, you know, as Christians, we're to learn God's perspective about people who were once our enemies and who he, who he loves by learning uh, how to love our enemies at the very t moment when they feel that way. I think that's why the persecuted church has always showed better signs of Christian maturity than the unpersecuted church, because mm -hmm. they understand uh, that what our, we're tasked with right here is learning how to love these people who are not on our side um, and uh, help them to see that God is still on their side. Uh, and that practice is rather good for the soul and rather uh, hard, to, <laughs> hard to engage intentionally. Yeah. Well, I, I, that was, I think, very profound to say that the persecuted church is more mature and often grows um, because it is forced, has to grapple with, you know, loving their enemies in mm -hmm. a way that a non persecuted church then doesn't have to. Um, I think that's really profound. Um, well, thank you for that because, I, as an example, you know, it's the, the commandment that Jesus gives to us, you know, to love our enemies isn't something you find in the natural world. Like it's not an evolutionary um, imperative. Uh, and so you're bringing this theological, you know, imperative that we receive from Jesus is, you know, from the loving God, but you're running that through the neuroscience of enemy modes of, of state learning uh, mm -hmm. and these types of things to try to show, how can we do what Jesus told us to do better, uh, given what we now learned about the brain and relationships? And so I think that's that's just a great example of what a, neo uh, a neuro theologian is doing. So for people who are wondering, well, what what are they doing? Well, that's what that's what they're doing. 
So thank mm-hmm. you for that. Yeah. And that you, when you look at the brain, you realize that when you get to the point of beliefs, you're way too far in a brain process to reverse the uh, enemy mode. You have to start with an attachment, uh, which is early enough in the sequence to, to get you out of it. And so that, uh, you know, makes sense of a lot of biblical teaching uh, and Mm -hmm. why a lot of our currents waiting till, you know, till I can fake it till we make it. Uh, doesn't really work very well when it comes to loving enemies. Mm, mm, that's so good. Well, thank you so much for your time and thank you for uh, kind of letting me uh, pelt you with all these questions. And thanks again for all your work and for, I guess, giving up media and other things so that you could just read and produce and work on these different things. I know myself and a, a bunch of others uh, really appreciate it. I got a bunch of, you know, social media kind of. Uh, texts and messages that they were glad I was having you on to ask all these questions. So thank you for your work. Yeah. And I appreciate your being at the interface with the social media, because the thing with staying out of culture for 40 years to <laughs> learn the neuroscience is that you lose track of where culture was. And so, uh, you know, I still have a great trouble trying to run a cell phone, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, yeah, yeah. you could do these kind of interviews. Well, I love, I love doing it. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll have you on again sometime soon uh, hopefully after november we'll have a new book well usually i ask people to introduce where they are on social media but since you don't do that but you can be found at life model works and that's kind of org, the, yes mm-hmm. life is it life model.org or life model works life model works.org yeah. life model works.org uh that's pretty much where you'll find all things jim wilder and the different things that he's up to he has a leadership collective you're launching another one the next fall yeah, now we try to keep them starting regularly. And that's a year-long kind of process. You mm-hmm. meet uh, every other week with Jim and Ray and Michael Sullivan, I believe. And mm-hmm. so that's one way to kind of jump in. There's also other trainings that you can find uh, for all, about all this stuff on lifemodelworks.com. Uh, as always, ah, thank you for correcting me. Lifemodelworks.org. Thank you. Yep. So please... Um, This is, again, the Embodied Faith Podcast. You can rate and review us on uh, iTunes. You can listen to us on Spotify, also on YouTube, on my channel, Jeffrey Holsklaw. Uh, Please share this around, um, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much, Jim. All right. Blessings. 